What I want to say today, essentially, is that Jesus Christ, along with the Father and the Holy Spirit, hatched a plan of redemption. They hatched a plan of redemption before any of you were born. This plan was made before any human was born. This plan of redemption was hatched in the Trinity before the foundation of the world. Before the foundation of the world, there was a conversation happening in the Godhead about this right here, which is the church, the ecclesia of God. The Trinity had a plan of redemption. And this plan is what they are pursuing even now. I want to talk to you today about the plan of Jesus Christ to build his church, that it is his plan of redemption. There is no plan B. The plan of redemption is the church. That was the plan from the beginning, and it shall be the plan until Christ returns, is that the way that God is going to redeem people in this world is through the church and by no other means. But that kind of thinking is pretty alien uh, today. I have my clicker. Here we go. Oh, it's working. There we go. I think it's going to work now. There we go. That kind of thinking is pretty alien today. This is Pastor Rob Bell. And Rob Bell says, I actually think Jesus would be mortified that a religion started in his name. I think he'd be like, you what? And I think that kind of thinking is fairly common in the world. You hear things like, well, Christianity is something that was man-made. It's a, it's a religion that people started after Jesus Christ left the earth. His disciples thought, what should we do now? And they started this society that we call today the church. You'll hear others, maybe non-believers, say things like, hey, listen, the church didn't begin with Jesus. It didn't begin with his followers either. It began in around the 300s AD with a man called Constantine. He was the one who started this thing that you call church. It has nothing to do with Jesus. It's to do with man-made control and religion. People seem to think today that the church was something that Jesus actually never planned. He never intended for this thing to start. That it just kind of happened. And it's really not to do with him. It's an awkward byproduct of his ministry. You'll hear people say things like, you know, I don't mind Jesus. I don't mind him as it goes. I just don't buy into organized religion. Have you heard that before? I don't buy into organized. I don't do organized religion. I do spirituality, but I'm not religious. In the West, we've got this really disconnected idea about Jesus and the church. And I think that's because we have something called an individualistic culture. Have you heard about individualism before? Do you know what I mean when I say that? It's, it's what we were born into, this individualistic culture where we think primarily about ourselves. We think about our direction in life. We think about our dreams, our objectives. We think about our, even in terms of our faith, we think about our personal relationship with God, don't we? We're very geared towards thinking about our personal relationship with God. And so if you asked any Christian, listen, what's the most important part of your week? 
What's the most important part of you? How many of them are genuinely going to say church? I would say most would say, it's probably my personal time with the Lord. It's my quiet time. It's my study time. It's my prayer time. It's my family time. You wouldn't hear many say, it's the time on Sunday when I gather with the saints for worship. It just wouldn't be the way we think today. We have a very individualistic culture in the world, and I think because that's just the water we swim in in culture, I think we bring that into our faith life as well. We see things in that very kind of like personal, individualistic manner. Now, I don't want to do down your personal worship time. I'm not here today to have a go at anybody about valuing that. I think we should value that more than we do. What I am saying is that it's interesting that probably no generation until the current one has thought that way. So we're born into this very individualistic culture. It spills over into our faith life. And Pastor Terry Johnson, who's a Presbyterian minister from the States, he noted that American Christians on the other side of the pond, they tend to view church and church membership like they view gym membership. (laughs) That's kind of how they see it. It's a parallel. They say things like, well, I go to church because... It makes me feel better. It's good for me. And how many of you would agree it's, it's good to be part of a local church? It does do you good. Or they might say things like, well, you know, I get, I get along to church when I can. Uh, when the schedule allows, I get along. Um, if I can't go to church, you know, I just work out at home. I do my spirituality at home. And that's become more prevalent, I think, since COVID, since all the lockdowns. We had uh, pajama church. And that kind of way of seeing church has become, I think, more, more common. It's like, well, listen, I, I can't make it to church. I'm just going to do church at home. Another view that Johnson noted was that Americans also, and I think Brits too, we have this other view of church, not the gym view, but the, you ever watch Friends? Or am I just really putting out my age here? But I love Friends. But the central perk version of church You know that vibe in the coffee shop where we're all sat on sofas, it's just so warm and cozy. If you're older, the cheers vibe. You know, everybody knows your name and it's all about the community. And that's not wrong because church is, if it's anything, it's community, isn't it? It's where people know you. It's where you go to get known, hopefully. And in a good church, there should be that kind of warm, fuzzy vibe where you come in, hey, how's it going? And he says that's another common view Americans have about church, the central perk church. I come in, everyone knows my name. You know, we just hang out whenever we can. We get together, we have a coffee, we might talk, we might pray together. It's not formal, it's informal. That's the central perk view of church that he thinks is common in America. I would say it's pretty common here. We have this idea that that verse in Matthew 18 that says, where two or three are gathered together in my name, and we'll say, well, wherever two or three are gathered, that's church. And we'll talk about that later. But there's that other view about church, which is more casual. It's more about community. And it's not necessarily wrong. It's true. But is it the whole picture, I wonder? So I want to show you how these views of church are actually having an impact statistically, in the UK. Some UK statistics. In the census in 2021, did you know that 46% of the UK population actually identified as Christian? I don't know about you, but that shocked me. I thought that's way higher. Way, way higher than I, than I would thought. I would have thought it would be somewhere around 20% at best. But 46% 
of Christians, sorry, of people in the UK identify as Christian. Now that's come down over the years. Actually, that's much lower than the previous census, but I think it's still quite high. So 46% in the UK identify as Christian, but only 5% actually go to church. 5% actually go to church, but 46% say that they're Christians. And church attendance on the whole has been falling off a cliff for the last 20 to 30 years, maybe even more than that. Some of you remember in your youth that Sunday services used to be busy, uh, that there would be Sunday schools, and things have changed. And now the average church size is roughly this, which to me is, is a small church. If we were to look at a congregation of 20 to 30 back in the day, we would say that's a small church, but actually it's average today. That's an average-sized church in the UK. And I think since the pandemic, I've spoken anecdotally to lots of church leaders who've said that around 20% of their congregations actually didn't come back after the lockdowns, but instead stayed away. And so this isn't the case in every church, but certainly in many, there's been an even further drop-off since the pandemic. Now, to contrast that with the next most populous religious group in the UK, which is Islam, in the UK, practicing Muslims, the, the number of practicing Muslims in the country has grown by a million in 10 years. I want you to just take a minute to think about that. The population of practicing Muslims in the UK has grown by a million. That's a, in 10 years. That's a city the size of Birmingham since 2012. So that's a big shift in terms of the visibility of Islam in the UK. And it's now at about 3.9 million practicing Muslims in the UK. Well, we won't get into that right now. You can go home and research that, brother. But that's straight from the, um, that is straight from the uh, census, 2021. Um, you can get other figures if you look elsewhere, but th that's the latest data I'm working off of. I can share the presentation with you later. You can have a look. Um, and what's really interesting is that over half of that number attend mosque weekly. They attend mosque weekly. So you've got a radical increase in the number of Muslims, and these Muslims take the mosque more seriously, a lot more seriously than most Christians take church attendance. If you go mosque over the weekend or on Friday nights, it's packed. It's packed. They take it seriously. Christians have, I would say, in the West, a very low ecclesiology. We maybe take our personal faith with Jesus reasonably seriously, but we don't take the church seriously. We might think we do, but our attendance says otherwise. Now, what's going to happen, do you think, in another 10 years if these trends continue? Do you think we'll see a re-Christianization of culture in the UK? Or do you think it might actually shift and we'll see attendances in the mosques actually overtake attendance in the church? I think that's a, a very realistic possibility. And who's to say what the outcome might be? But the trends are going that way. And I think for culture, we are going to see a greater impact of that in the coming decade. So what's the point of all of this? Why am I talking about this? Well, I think if we genuinely want to see a move of God 
in our nation, if we want to see our city turn to Christ, if we want to see a change in this nation, then I think we could start somewhere. We could start by raising our view of the importance of church. I think because of individualism, many of us actually, as I've said, see our personal worship time as more important than church. Um, And I think we see church as kind of incidental to our Christian life rather than vital to our church. Do you know what I mean? It's kind of like a side thing that we kind of know we're supposed to go to, but we, we don't really do it. And then Muslims see mosque as vital to their faith. And you can see how that's going to go. Okay? Churches are closing all over the UK. Did you know that? Most churches that start die within three years. Most church plants don't make it. Uh, so this is already a miracle <laughs> that we're still going, thanks be to God. But even now, I, I was speaking to somebody on Friday who's a, a real estate agent who was telling me, listen, if you're in the market for old church buildings, there's always something coming up because churches are closing all the time. So this is something that's going to increase in terms of our trend. I remember a few years ago, I was running a uh, student group. This is going back a while. I was running a student group and um, we ran an, a, a night of worship. And I remember a lady came along and afterwards um, wanted to give me a prophetic word. I love when people give you a prophetic word. You just, I don't know if, if you're like me with this. I'm, I'm always like, it depends on the person. If I know them and I trust them, I love it. Like I've just had one, um, you know, today somebody's come to me and said, I, I've got this word for you. And I thought that is, you know what, that, that actually might be God speaking to me there. Um, but then there's some people you don't know. And you've always got that level of like the guard going up. <laughs> and this lady said, I've got a word for you. I said, oh, great. Okay. Um, yeah, please do tell me. And, um, and she said, okay, well, uh, in worship, I was watching the, the girl that you had leading worship. It was actually Becky, who's here. She was leading worship. And, and she said, when she led worship, I saw these angels come. These angels came and they stood behind you and they were singing. They were singing with you. And The sound was beautiful, and the presence of God was so thick. I said, wow, that's amazing. And she said, and then you began to sing. (laughs) And then you began to sing, and the angels folded their arms, wept, and flew away. (laughs) Oh, wow, so encouraging. So... (laughs) Oh dear. So you can see now why I got my hackles up when everybody's got a prophetic word for me. Um, and anyway, this, this lady, lovely and well-meaning as she was, I asked her, I said, oh, what church do you go to? I hadn't met her before. She said, oh, what church do you go to? She said, oh, Jesus has called me out of the church. I said, he did what? Jesus has called me out of the church. He doesn't want me to be part of it. He spoke to me and said he doesn't want me to be part of it. Now, if you'd said that to anyone 500 years ago, they'd have put you in an asylum. (laughs) But this is the kind of prevalent view that you'll find these days. The idea that church is not essential to your Christian walk. All in all, as I say, most of us have this idea that church is something that's kind of there. Yeah, it's, it's a thing, but it's not necessarily vital to our walk with Christ. But what does Jesus say? This is, the, this is the key question, isn't it? What does Jesus say about the church? Because if he has a different view to us, then that's going to change things, isn't it? If Jesus thinks differently than we do about the church, then that's something I want to listen to. So what does Jesus say? Well, actually, he only mentions church twice. 
He only mentions the church twice in all of the Gospels. Most of the mentions of church come in the letters of uh, Romans and Galatians, uh, 1 Timothy, 2 sec- uh, 2 Timothy. Jesus actually only mentions it twice in Matthew 16, as we read earlier, and Matthew 18. And that's led some people to say, well, Jesus doesn't really care too much about the church. If he could only take time to mention church twice, what's the big deal? But to quote another pastor, Jesus' words are to be weighed and not counted. And the two times Jesus does mention the church, and the first time in Matthew 16, he says this. He says, Oikodomeso mutain ecclesian, which means I will build my church. I will, future tense, build oikodomeso, my church. Now that word my, you see mu there, um, that's put in front of the church to emphasize that it is his. Jesus says, this is something I am going to do. He's telling us something about his mission. He's telling us something about his mission, what his priorities are. He says, I will build my church. That's what Jesus's mission is. Now we've got to ask a follow-up question. What does he mean by church? Some of you weren't here when we began this series into church. You may have missed the first session on the whole word ecclesia. What does Jesus mean by church? Well, it's made up out of two Greek words. Ek, which is a, pre- a preposition, and it means out of. And kaleo, which is a verb which means to call out or to call So that's led some to say, and you've probably heard me preach it before, that the church, the ecclesia, the church means the called out ones. Have you heard that before? You heard message preached on that? The church is those called out of the world. And that's true on a level. It's true on a level. But D.A. Carson, the biblical scholar, I think he nails this, and he's very, very good. If you don't read D.A. Carson, start reading D.A. Carson. Fantastic scholar. He says, usage of a word is far more important than etymology in determining the meaning. So what he's saying is, pastors make this mistake all the time. They they don't read Greek, and so they go to the interlinear, they look at the word, they tap the root meanings of the word, and they go, the word means that, because my etymology chart says it means that. I've looked in Strong's Concordance, it says that the word means that, therefore it means that. D.A. Carson's saying no. A word is determined not just by its etymology, but by the context in which it is used. And that's absolutely true, isn't it? You know, if you said, yeah, I, uh, I used my vacuum and I, I did the floor. Well, if I Googled the, the definition of vacuum, I'd have all kinds of crazy ideas about what you just did in your living room. You did what? You sucked all the air out of your whole living room and that's somehow done something to your carpet. Well, it don't mean that in the context. It means a vacuum cleaner, doesn't it? So we've got, we've got to be careful not to just look at Strong's and say, well, that's what the word means, because it's determined by more than that. And ecclesia means the assembly of God's people in every context. It doesn't just get used in church context. That word ecclesia in ancient Greek text is used to describe gatherings of people, societies, political groups. That's an ecclesia. It's a gathering of people. And so the church is an assembly of God's covenant people. So when you're out on your own at work 
I've heard people say this before, well, I'm the church. No, you're not. Not by the definition of the, of the text of Scripture you're not, because the church is the assembly. So unless you're in the assembly, you're not in the church. Does that make sense? The church is the covenant people gathered together. It's the assembly of God's people. In fact, that whole thing goes way back into the Old Testament. The Bible says that actually God had a church in the wilderness around Mount Sinai. That was his church. That was his assembly. And Christ says, I will build my church. It's Jesus's mission statement. It's something that he has put his name to. I'm going to do this thing. This is what my plan is. This is what I'm excited about. How many of you understand when you've got a mission statement in life, how many of you have got a dream that you're pursuing in life? How many of you have, had, have something that you're going after that you desire to accomplish? Any of you? Or are you just drifting through life like flotsam? Do you have things you want to accomplish? Are you passionate about those things? Are you passionate about them or do you not care? I'm sure you're passionate about those things. And you'd move heaven and earth to make it happen. Well, Jesus says the thing he's passionate about getting done is building this. Building the church. And in a real sense, all of Christ's other statements about what he came to earth to do fall under this one. They fall under this one. This is an umbrella statement of why Jesus came. He said, I've come to do my Father's will, didn't he? I've come to do my Father's will, not my own, my Father's. But what was his Father's will? John 6, 38 and 39. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has what? Given to me, but raise it up on the last day. What was given to Christ by the Father? John 17 tells us as well. The elect, those who God ordained to salvation, Ephesians 1, the church was given to Christ to redeem. He says, I came to do my Father's will, and he is desirous that I should lose nothing of that which he's given me. Secondly, Jesus said, I've come to give my life as a ransom for many. Again, we've got Jesus coming to ransom what? Things? Entities? No, people. People from death and from sin to ransom them, to win them to himself with his own blood. That falls under, I will build my church. I will build my church. He came also to do what? To lay down his life for whom? For the sheep. For the sheep. Again, he came to build his church. That's what Jesus came. And all of these statements have to do with the ecclesia, this gathering, you people in the visible church here today and all the other Christians all around the world meeting and gathering to worship God today. That's what Christ came to do. That's what he says his passion is. That's his business that he is about. It matters to him. It's not incidental to his work. Do you see that? For many of us, church is incidental to our faith, to our Christian walk we don't see it as vital. But for Jesus, the church was vital. For Jesus, the foundation of his church was essential. It's what he's about. It's what he's doing in the earth right now. Are you catching my drift? It matters to Jesus 
so much, but it matters to so many Christians so little. This guy is Cyprian of Carthage, a North African believer from the early church. And he said this very famous quote in Latin at the top, which many scholars have repeated throughout the ages of church history, salus extra ecclesium non est, which in English means there is no salvation outside of the church. Now he meant the visible church. It's a strong, strong statement, isn't it? To say that unless you are in the church of Jesus Christ, then there is no salvation. Cyprian saw church like Noah's ark in the Old Testament. He saw it like the ark. And we don't read in the Old Testament about anybody surviving that flood outside of that ark, do we? If you wanted to survive the, the storm, you had to be where? Inside the ark. You couldn't be floating around. You couldn't be finding a little strip of wood and floating on your own way. There was no survival of the storm outside of the ark that God had Noah design. And this is how the church is to be seen. It's not peripheral to your faith. It is vital to your walk with Jesus Christ. And the idea that you could follow Jesus and follow Yahweh without having any interaction with his church would have been absolutely alien to a guy like Cyprian. He would have said, what? Well, that's not possible. <laughs> There's no salvation outside of the church. This is a seawall in Holland. I'm not going to try and pronounce it because Jamie's not here. And he'll watch the video back and it'll be embarrassing. But this is a seawall that was designed around 100 years ago. And on the right-hand side is the Vaden Sea. I think that's how you pronounce it. And on the left-hand side is a lake that was created by that seawall, which rises seven meters above sea level. It's an incredible feat of engineering. It took years and years to build. They had to drag all this ballast and sand and earth and drop it into the ocean until it rose up above the ocean. And then they had to cement it down, bring rocks, and then bring, they planted grass on top of it, as you can see, to protect it from uh, being destroyed by the sea. In 1953, there was a huge storm that blew in down the North Sea. In fact, Areas of East Anglia flooded at the same time. It was a very, very bad storm surge. And it would have been catastrophic for the low-lying lands in the Netherlands, but for this seawall. This seawall survived the storm. It wasn't destroyed, and therefore people's lives were kept safe. And the story of this seawall, standing strong against unimaginable forces for decade after decade after decade, is a picture of Christ's church, I think. But even this incredible seawall, though it was built expertly by the engineers that built it, even that now is in need of repair. It's in need of repair and restoration because its architects were only human. But think about the church. What other institution has lasted for 2,000 years? Unbroken. There's never been a time when there hasn't been a church on the earth. If we go right back past Pentecost even, 
we see God's covenant people in Israel. We go right back to the garden and we see the covenant made with Adam. There has always been a church on the face of the earth. Why? Because its architects were not human. They were divine. The Godhead designed the church. It's his plan. It's not man's idea. It's God's idea. And Jesus said, listen, not even the gates of hell are going to prevail against this church. Not even the gates of Hades will prevail. What on earth did he mean by that? What did he mean by saying the gates of hell will not prevail against my church? Well, I think a few things can be meant by that. Firstly, I think it means that those in the church of Jesus Christ will never die. Whenever you see in ancient Jewish literature the phrase the gates of hell or the gates of Hades, the gates of Sheol, it means death. It doesn't mean the devil, it means death. So I think we can take that from it at first, is that the church will never die. Secondly, gates don't attack you, do they? You attack gates. If you're going to take a city, you don't run up to the gates and think, goodness me, we better watch out for the gates. You attack the gates and you break through them. So what Jesus is saying is that the mission of the church is actually offensive, not defensive. We are attacking the gates of Hades, not fleeing from them. We are pillaging Hades. We are destroying the gates and we are taking and plundering death by winning souls for Christ. Does that make sense? The mission of the church is evangelistic. It's to reach souls with the gospel. It's to save the lost sinners from perishing and win them to Christ and to eternal life. So Jesus is saying, listen, they will be successful in that. The church will be successful in plundering death, in winning souls for Christ. How many of you think that's good news in times like these? Also, I think it means the church cannot be destroyed by human hand. And when we think about the times we live in now, as we see the, the ebb of Christianity in the West, the tide is going out. Even this week, there's been an announcement from GAFCON, which is the Global Anglican Futures Conference, that they no longer recognize the Archbishop of Canterbury, the, the seat of Augustine, as it's called. They no longer recognize him and his leadership over the Anglican Communion, which I think is a strong and brave statement, but sad nonetheless, that this is the time that we're in. We're seeing the ebb of Christianity in the West, but Jesus says, my church shall never die. There'll never be a time when there's not a church on this earth. Christ is committed to his church. He's laid down his life for his church. And I believe, brothers and sisters, we have to honor his sacrifice. He spilt his blood for you and I. And more importantly, he spilt his blood for his church. There's only one way to be saved in this world. And that is in the ark of Christ. There's no other name given under heaven by which man must be saved other than the name of Jesus. And if Jesus says that I must be in his church to be saved, I must trust in him, I must obey him, then I'm going to get on board that ark and I'm going to try and get as many on board the ark with me as I possibly can. Even though people may mock. And that is the state of our nation today, isn't it? You know, most people aren't angry at me when I talk to them about Jesus on the streets. Most people are just indifferent. Isn't that true? 
Most people are just indifferent. It doesn't matter. They don't believe in Judgment Day. They don't believe Jesus is coming back. And because you do, you look like a lunatic. You look like a crazy person. You look just like Noah did when he began to build that ark out of Gopherwood all those thousands of years ago. You look crazy. But what happened then? The rains came, the great fountains of the deep burst and opened up and the whole world was flooded up above the tops of the mountains and everybody not on the ark perished. Let me tell you this, Jesus is coming back. He is implausible as it may seem. One day those skies will be rolled back as a scroll and you will see him coming on the clouds of glory to judge the living and the dead. And no one will escape on that day. Every life that has ever lived on this planet will have to appear before his great white throne. And in that day, there'll only be one type of people that is saved. And those are those who are on the ark, who are in Christ, who are in his ecclesia, in his church. There won't be any people drifting on pallets of wood on that day. There'll be nobody who is judged righteous before our holy God, other than those that are covered by the blood of Christ. Why don't you stand with me? I don't believe that the Bible says that the church saves. I believe the Bible says that Jesus saves. But the church mattered to Jesus. It was why he came. And for that reason, if we want to see the kingdom of God take land in this nation once again, if we want to see England turn to Christ once again, something has to change in our attitude to his church. Something has to shift. And I'm not just talking about this gathering. I'm talking about the nation. Something has to change for that tide to come back in again. Because God is a God of redemption. His plan for redemption is the church. And I want to say today, he's your redeemer also. I hope today that your trust is not in your works, that your trust is not in any other name for salvation other than Christ. I hope your trust isn't in your Christian performance. That's an easy one to get stuck in. I'm a pastor. you let me in. Many pastors will end up in hell. Many men who stood behind pulpits will say on that day, but Lord, didn't I prophesy in your name? Didn't I cast out demons? And you'll say, away from me, I never knew you. Because getting to heaven isn't about what you do in this world. It isn't about how good you are. It's not about what position you hold in this church. It's about simply this. Did you trust in yourself or in Christ for your salvation? That's the bottom line. So I'd urge you today, Check your heart. Where is your trust? Where does your trust lie for salvation? If anywhere else other than Jesus Christ and Christ alone, don't delay, but put it in him today. And I will say, say for many of you to look inwards at your own life and ask the Holy Spirit to help you to trust Jesus as your Redeemer. The Redeemer of your life, but also the Redeemer 
of all the brokenness that you've walked through in life. He's the redeemer of even the most terrible things that we have to live through. And some of you have walked through some very painful things. Perhaps even are, at this moment, walking through difficult and painful things. Look to Jesus. Look to him who says, I am your redeemer. And say, Jesus, I give this brokenness to you. I give this failure or this grief or this pain to you, my Redeemer. And I ask you to heal me now. I ask you to help me walk through this. I ask you to redeem these black moments in my life when I felt hopeless, when I felt defeated. Would you redeem even those moments? You know, Sinclair Ferguson said that the Lord Jesus Christ orders the cosmos for the benefit of his people. Romans 8.28, he orders the cosmos for the benefit of his people. All things work together for good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Let's pray.